Um, speaking of which, we turn to God's Word, Daniel 2, our Old Testament reading uh, this morning. And this is the passage from which uh, the sermon uh, will come this morning. So Daniel 2, this is God's Word. Please give careful attention to it. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came, and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your house shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. And therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed by the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. 
And therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and he said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. And then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, astrologers, showed to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of my wisdom or any wisdom that I have more than all the living but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, saw and behold a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And the head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. This was the dream. And now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. Yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the entire earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay... And partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, 
and that it broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Jackson Brown, that iconic performer from the 70s until the present, has a song entitled Lives in the Balance, in which he describes the godlike hunger that exists in our world and in the politics of North America in particular. Existing on the cusp of a political season, perhaps it is good for us to reflect again on ultimate answers and ultimate concerns. Jackson Brown turns towards the East for his answers. It is represented by the sublime unrest just under the surface of our nation. He sings, Hunger in the Midnight. Hunger at the stroke of noon, hunger in the mansion, hunger in the rented room, hunger on the TV, hunger on the printed page. There's a God-sized hunger under the laughter and the rage in the questions of the age and the absence of light in the cheapening night where I wait for the sun looking east. Well, last week we were introduced to this terrible, terrifying King Nebuchadnezzar, under which Daniel and his companions were subjected in exile. This chapter opens recording Nebuchadnezzar's own deep unrest and insomnia, so much so no amount of Ambien or other sleep medications could quell such a full-souled anxiety that he was going through. Perhaps he was haunted by a growing suspicion of his personal well-being or the security of his own kingdom were threatened something beyond his control. So he calls on the wise men to come and explain his dream and to relate its interpretation. At first, they address the king without the expected decorum. The king then becomes irritated and threatens them, at which time, in verse 7, they repeat the request, but this time, more respectfully, they've been reminded of their manners. His court was growing more unstable due to his mental and emotional, uh, emotional exhaustion. In the uninterpreted dream, he realized that not everything belonged to him, nor answered to his beck and call. And the crisis occurs when he orders, out of apparent frustration, that all the wise men of Babylon be murdered and killed. So this morning, I want you to look at three Uh, points with me, Daniel's predicament first, and then Daniel's prophecy, and then Daniel's posture. So first of all, Daniel's predicament, then Daniel's prophecy, and then Daniel's posture. Daniel's ministry becomes necessary because of the state or the nation 
in his day that had turned bestial, even as many states and nations in our own time have turned bestial. Nebuchadnezzar had abused his God-given authority. But then in verses 10 and 11, it becomes perfectly clear. Uh, in fact, the wise man answered in verse 10 and 11, There's not a man upon the earth that is able to declare the matter of the king. For as much as no great and powerful king has asked a matter like this of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean, and the thing which the king asks is difficult, there is not another that can declare it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Perhaps when I read from God's word this morning out of this chapter, you would do well just to listen. You won't find the translations in your ESV as they're being read. At this point, the king becomes enraged in verse 11. And he orders the destruction of all the wise men of Babylon. And so the decree goes out that the wise men were to be slain, including Daniel and his companions, that they ought to be slain. In fact, in verse 13, um, as opposed to what you read in your ESV, there's an indication that the killing is already going on. And so Daniel approaches Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, with counsel and discretion, seeking to know why the decree is so, so pressing. And then in 2.16, Daniel actually goes before the king so that he would give him time, time to pray, time to figure out the interpretation. And if so, then he would explain it to the king. And then in verses 17 and 18, Daniel goes to the house of his companions, to Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, and makes the matter known what they are to do. Literally, in verse 18, they seek mercies from before the God of heaven concerning the secret that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And here, the word for secret, we have introduced a very important word, a Persian loan word that comes into Aramaic. And then it's brought into Greek and even affects, we have some Greco-files in the room, so I have to indulge them. Um, and then affects the Greek language where Paul interprets this word, raza, as mysterion. This is the great mystery that's hidden, but then becomes known. And how does it become known? Only by God's will. It crops up at Qumran later, and as I said, it becomes very influential in Paul's theology. Then in verse 20, May the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power are his, Daniel says. And listing these attributes distinguishes the one true God from the idols of Babylon with which Daniel was going to become embroiled. Moreover, notice the light of the emphasis uh, from last week. He has power. He has uh, he governs, namely God governs everything, even as we were making mention of last week, that God is sovereign, not the kings of Babylon. Calvin rightly says about the interconnection between wisdom and power. We must remember how God is defrauded of his just praise when we do not connect these two attributes together. His universal foresight and his government of the world allowing nothing to happen without his permission, close quote. And then verse 21 through 23, he goes on in his exclamatory prayer to say about God, He it is who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. 
He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who know understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells to, uh, with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I do thank and praise for wisdom and power you have given to me. And now you have caused me to know what we sought from you. For the matter of the king, you have caused me to know. In short, Daniel is saying and declaring that the whole course of human history belongs to the one true God. In Daniel's prayer, he acknowledges this. Daniel acknowledges that this is more than merely a revelation given in nature. It is a revelation of the plan of salvation that's given under the old covenant and sundry times and divers manners to the fathers and the prophets, and now to us through his son, even in the hearing of his word this morning. This revelation has revealed deep purposes, a word which signifies their vastness and their profundity. The hidden things are specifically those which are to occur in the future and which are predicted by the prophets. Darkness are those things which are yet dark to man and unknown, but are fully known to God himself. And light is that which dwells with God. There's a kind of crescendo here that is given to these mysteries. And as such, it should be recognized by us. So equipped with this new kind of knowledge, Daniel approaches Ariok again and entreats him to bring him before the king. Since he knows how the answer and the interpretation uh, should go with regard to what the king desires. And Daniel thus relates to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28. O king, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days, your dreams and the visions of your head upon the bed are these. Now, what did Daniel mean by the latter days? The real point of the phrase is the issue or the outcome In Tolkien's language, things are now set in motion which cannot be undone. It's more than just the end. For Daniel could have chosen another word to indicate that he was talking about the end. Rather, it's the latter days. Does it mean the last days? Does it mean a consummation of its in and of itself? Well, that's a deeper question. We don't know just how far Jewish thinking had come by this point. But nevertheless... Daniel says, hear these words, this is what is to be in the latter days. The main point here is that Daniel had prayed in faith. He'd been given an answer to his prayer, revealed to him what would be in the latter days. And now he makes known that vision of the night. Daniel's predicament gives way to Daniel's prophecy. Daniel's vision, which is really God's vision, corrects the entire scene. Daniel first makes clear where the source of wisdom comes from. As for me, not because of the wisdom that is in me, above all living beings, is this secret revealed to me, but the interpretation that it may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart, and then he gives it. First of all, notice Daniel's extreme humility and the fact that there is no doubt about where this secret knowledge, this mystery comes from. Daniel says, the wisdom's not me, it was revealed. He doesn't say it was revealed by God. 
But you, the listener, are supposed to plug it in. This is a passive as opposed to an active verb. So usually when we use passive verbs in English, the agent of that passive uh, verb is indicated. Not so here. He just says, it was revealed. Look, it's an easy grammatical point. When Jesus was on the cross and the temple was rent in two, who did the rending of the curtain? It was God. It doesn't say that it was God, but it was obviously God, especially if you know anything about the size and weight of the curtain. God was the one who rent the curtain in two. And so here, that's what we have, that it was revealed by God himself to Daniel, this dream and the interpretation. And so also here, furthermore, the text goes on to say that the interpretation may be known to the king or may be made known to the king. What it says literally is that they may make known to the king. A third-person plural verb. So all of you, simple grammar, kids and adults alike, should be saying, well, who's the they? Well, the they is not specified. The they was probably angels who are doing God's bidding, and they're going to make known at God's behest uh, what the revelation was that Daniel understood. So this is kind of an impersonal, non-specified agent, another kind of uh, divine passive, if you will, sometimes used for deference. In other words, if I want to avoid offending you or want to avoid seeming like I'm going to bend your will to do my will, then I'll kick it into something that's not the first person or the second person. I won't say I. I'll say you. Or your parents may suggest it would be really nice if one would clean his room or her room or if he would clean his room, he'd do so in, you know, her room style. <laughs> well, that's a way that we avoid giving direct offense, to kick it into these indirect ways of speaking. And that's exactly what happens here. Although, he will use you remarkably when he addresses the king, really remarkably, coming up. For after the courtiers had failed to reveal the dream and the interpretation to the king, Daniel is summoned and begins to disclose the desired information to the king. And some in the past have interpreted this kind of unspecified subject construction as a substitute for divine agency. And they're right. It refers to angels. But the angels aren't mentioned because, after all, who cares? Who's the ultimate agent that directs the action? God himself. And thus, it exalts his majesty. God does... Uh, his commands and his angels do his bidding. In short, Daniel is employing a safe deferential strategy here when he stands before the king by using these kinds of passive constructions. And this is not at odds with a divine passive. Rather, the deference and the divine passives work simultaneously. Daniel self-consciously is using this kind of tact which all recognized when he comes before the king. The court in Persia was so magnificent that when the Greeks saw it, they actually took it back to their own civilization. It far outstripped anything you can even imagine in going to the White House and, say, standing before the president of the United States. So majestic was the courtly etiquette and all the iconography that would have surrounded Daniel at this point. But then notice what Daniel does. 
Verse 31. You, O king, were seeing and behold. Unheard of in courtly rhetoric. He doesn't forget his manners. The spirit is trumping his manners at this point. You, O king Nebuchadnezzar, were seeing and behold a great image. This image was mighty and its brightness was surpassing. And it was standing before you and its appearance was frightful. Now up until this point, Daniel's been using this courtly rhetoric. But notice what he says now. You, you, he sets aside all earthly courtly decorum. And the content of the dream is that which will happen in the messianic age. Now we don't need to quibble about this referring to the age which would begin, run its course with the appearance of God on earth and then grow, you know, with the inauguration of the new kingdom in Christ. Or whether Daniel is referring to the very end of time here with some kind of epochal finality when he makes this uh, interpretation. Either way, it gets us to the same place. There's no evidence here in this chapter that this colossal statue was actually an idol. It is a statue in human form. But notice it was bright because it was made of metal, gold, silver, iron, bronze. And the head, with its arms and breasts, its legs, its thighs, its feet, this statue constitutes a unified whole. Where is the interpretation of the symbolism of the statue to be found? In God's word. Note how the relating of the dream continues. In chapter, or rather verse 34, the narrator says, A stone was cut without hands, and it did smite the image upon its feet of iron and clay, and crush the whole thing. Now why would it say without hands? Because when we make something, we make it with our hands. God does not hand, have hands. God does not have a body like we do, right kids? This is, a, this is the description of a God-manufactured kingdom that will come when the stone is cut out of the mountain and then rolls down and crushes crushes the statue which represents any bestial state, any common grace state, any state at any time in the future. It constitutes one whole. And the fact of the matter is, Daniel now is preaching the gospel and saying, there is a kingdom that will not be swallowed up by subsequent kingdoms. There is a kingdom that will destroy every kingdom on the earth and supersede it. and will be more glorious than any statue you can erect of all these metals. Daniel's interpretation of, of, of the dream goes on in 36 through 45. The head of the gold refers to Nebuchadnezzar and therefore the Neo-Babylonian kingdom. The next portion refers to the Medo-Persian kingdom with the breast and the arms. The third portion, the belly and the thighs, refers to Greece and the fourth to Rome with the legs and the feet. And there seems to be in the, uh, in the symbolism a kind of progressive inferiority, if you will. But a whole host of Reformed, confessional, Old Testament interpreters have thought this phrase, in the days of those kings, would naturally refer to the four kingdoms of the kings represented by the image. 
And the interpretation involving the symbolism of the image, verse 45, uh, becomes all four kingdoms in a single sense. I would add my own name to that list. It is represented, do you see? The kingdoms of the colossal statue. As to their origin, the one is human. The kingdom of God is divine. As to their duration, the one is temporary. The latter, the kingdom of God, is eternal. As to their power, the one is swallowed up by each successive kingdom. The Neo-Babylonians would be swallowed up by the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire would be swallowed up by Greece. And Greece would be swallowed up by Rome. And Rome would try and subject to the Imperium everything that stood for the glory of Greece. But not so the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is unconquerable. Daniel saw the following, and he unveiled it for Nebuchadnezzar. The reference to Christ and his kingdom breaking into the midst of world affairs with irresistible power, smashing into oblivion every abusive, every bestial state that would seek to limit the growth of the kingdom of God. The blow of the stone in the kingdom that ensues comes with such a final and concussive force that it destroys every previously listed kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar now sees that it is more than economic factors that control the pace of history. Nebuchadnezzar now sees that it is even more than moral weakness of petty tyrants, namely the clay feet that mark the upheavals of human history. What Nebuchadnezzar now saw was that there was a hidden kingdom of Christ that presses in from beyond our present age and every age to bring to the world its inexorable destination. And then look at Daniel's posture. Notice that Daniel offers no bombastic, brash attempts at evangelism here. Sometimes Christians can be very irritating in their effort to scream the gospel at people, especially at the entrance of Petco Park. No, he follows courtly etiquette. He prayed that God would answer his prayer, and he did. And he now seeks a hearing with the king. And this whole chapter raises an interesting and very timely question. Does the church, in her present age, exercise any kind of prophetic power towards the culture? Well, the answer is a qualified yes and a qualified no. Does the church exercise any kind of prophetic power towards the surrounding culture? It was expected in the prophetic office of the Old Covenant, especially in the time of the monarchy, and especially in the time of the theocracy, that's what prophets were to do for a living. They were lawyers, and they would put together their briefs, and then they would come and they would indict the king or they would indict the people according to their failed living up to the expectations of the Mosaic Covenant. So the prophets did play this role uh, in the Old Testament. But John the Baptist is the prophet of ultimatum. 
Repent. He was the final prophetic prophet of the Old Covenant period. He called upon Israel to repent at the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. But Daniel, Daniel's been exiled. Daniel no longer lives in the, mon- uh, in, in the monarchy. Daniel no longer lives in the theocracy. His authority and power is to testify to the spiritual nature of God's kingdom. And that alone. Thomas Peck, that great ecclesiologist, said it so eloquently when he summed up the distinction of the spiritual power of God's kingdom as opposed to the power of the state, especially the bestial state. Its sanctions, the church, and I would add Daniel's message, since he's anticipating the role of the church as he's outside the theocracy, are not corporeal, that is, body, bodily, involving brute force, but only moral, only spiritual, appealing to the judgment, the faith, the conscience of its members. It knows nothing of the sword. It knows nothing of the dungeon. It knows nothing of the lash, the the pecuniary uh, fines, etc., etc., but only of argument, only of exhortation, only of admonition, only of censure, etc., etc. Its great function is to teach, to convince, to persuade, to bear witness to the truth. It triumphs, its triumphs are the triumphs of love. It drags no reluctant captives at the wheels of its chariot. Its design of its ordinances, its oracles, its ministry, is through the efficacious operation of the Holy Ghost to bring its captives into hearty sympathy with its king and so to give them a share in the glory and the exaltation of the triumphs of the king. Its only sword is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Its discipline is not the punishment of an avenging judge asserting the unbending majesty of the law, but the discipline of a tender mother whose bowels yearn over the wayward child and who afflicts no pain except for the child's reformation and salvation. The authority of his kingdom is spiritual. See, people of God, Daniel, and we, the corporate church, are to declare before the watching world Christ's kingdom. And this means that part of the message will consist in declaring to the world that they are engulfed in sin and they need a savior to extricate them. What should, we sh- what should we say by way of conclusion? Well, we should not sum up based upon the end of this chapter that Nebuchadnezzar experienced any type of true lively faith or conversion. The exposition of the dream and its interpretation left him unsettled, quiet, humble, at least in some measure, for some amount of time. But his repentance only extends so far, as we'll see when we turn to the chapters that follow. Soon he forgets, (laughs) and he abuses his children that he's responsible to watch and care for once again. We will see that soon enough that he returns to his tyrannical ways. In some, he just did not get it, since he only adds Daniel's God to the list of the so-called other gods to be worshipped.
See, it's not just pitiable Nebuchadnezzar who is anxiety-ridden about the stability of his empire and his own house-building projects. Right? Frequently, the ordinary common person who does not have the kind of wealth or power that Nebuchadnezzar did also becomes deeply sensitive to the tragic finitude of their life, their own mortality. And they ask, perhaps in quietness, what's the purpose of our life and our very existence? Where does it tend and where will it end? Why does there come to me, too, at the very best and my very highest moments in life, the strange, disturbing thought that even this might be the material of tragedy? Why is so much that is good and beautiful marked so deeply and indelibly with clear signs of frailty? God's word gives us all we need for faith and life in such moments, even as Daniel's word from God was sufficient for his needs. You hear how quiet it is? God's word gives us all we need for faith and life in such moments. Martin Luther, that great hero of the Reformation, recognized this principle of the word of God as manifestly clear at one point and as powerful. But he recognized that the church and the word are spiritual, moral. The church is ministerial. It has a declarative function for those ministers and would-be ministers in the room. He said in one sermon these unforgettable words, and I quote, For the word created heaven and earth and all things, Psalm 33, 6. The word must do this thing, and not we poor sinners. I simply taught. I simply preached, and I wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not be safe. But what would have it been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. What do you suppose is Satan's thought when one tries to do the thing by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and he thinks to himself, Oh, what a fine game those poor fools are up to now. But when we spread the word alone and let it alone do the work, that distresses him. For it is almighty and takes captive the hearts. And when the hearts are captured, the work will fall by itself. There's nothing to add to these eloquent words. Let's pray.